Welcome to Wine Crush, where winemakers tell the stories behind the vine. Thanks for joining us here on Portland Radio Project. Today, host Heidi Moore will guide us through the stories of two local winemakers. The first is about a winery which perpetuates the hand-in-hand collaboration of its co-founders, and the second centers on a three-year-long process between four friends to make their craft what it is today. Today in the studio, we have Jessica Mozeko with Afi Wines. Did I pronounce everything right? You got it. Whoop, whoop. Um, well, thank you for joining us. I'm excited. It's, it's. I don't know, we've talked a few times. It's time to have you in the studio. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Heidi. Yeah, absolutely. The one thing I was really impressed with when I came into the tasting room last year was the creed, the family creed and what that was. And so whether you want to start with that or you want to start from the beginning, I'm going to let you decide. Sure. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about how we started the winery, and then I'll tell you about how the AFI ethic came to be. Um, So AFI means and daughter in French. Uh, It's named that because my father and I co-founded the winery together 17 years ago. We did that because my dad, who was a software engineer, had a hobby of making wine in the garage, and I grew up always having to help him. And after he had done that for 20 years, he decided to start the winery professionally, and he asked me to start it with him. So we started it in 2003. We have a small estate vineyard that uh, my dad planted in the mid-80s up on Parrot Mountain in the Shehalem Mountains. And uh, we made wine together until he passed away. And now I'm the sole owner and winemaker, making about 3,000 cases a year. Which is, um, that's a lot for one person to make that much wine. But to add to the whole family dynamic, you have a very cute, very sassy (laughs) four. Sassy is a great way to put it. Yeah, so I have my daughter who... um, You know, my dad and I started this together, and after he passed away, I decided that I absolutely wanted to continue making wines that are inspired by his legacy and my daughter's future. So she's only four and a half, can't say whether she will follow me in the business, but uh, certainly my winemaking is inspired by the two of them. Well, I love your Instagram feeds because... She gets labeled as the boss. Oh, totally. Fairly often. She is. In our household, too. Yeah. It's, you know, you just never know quite what you're going to get when you have a little one. Right. So how does the family creed spill over to your employees and the rest of your dynamic with the winery? So what happened was last year, um, we were having a staff meeting, and I looked around and I realized that only one other person besides me, had been around when it was my dad and I running the winery. And I thought that it was really important to write down and be very clear and transparent and purposeful about what it is that we believe wine should be, how it is we want to run the business, and how we look at things. So I wrote a series of five statements that are centered around what wine should be, how it should play a role in what we're trying to achieve and what we have in life and how I want the business to run. And in part of that process, it's really meant to be very clear and transparent as well as to guide our decision-making. So if we're considering a decision, making a decision, and it does not align with those five statements of the AFI ethic, then perhaps it's not something that we need to embark upon. 
I think that's just so refreshing, and it's very inspiring in the fact that you have been so methodical and very forward-thinking to what you want this to look like now mm-hmm. and what you want this to look like down the road and probably mm-hmm. way down the road once your daughter is maybe of that age where she really wants to figure out, does she want to be part or does she not? Absolutely. I mean, one of the components of the AFI ethic is that as a winery, we know that we are inevitably connected to our land, our seasons, and our community. And it's our responsibility to leave all of those in a better spot for the next generation. So that certainly drives our viticulture practices, our winemaking decisions, and our decision of what we support in the community. And I want to mention that you guys are in Newburgh as well. So your tasting room is in Newburgh. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But we're going to get into wine here in just a moment. So let's stop right there and be right back. You're listening to the PRP Podcast Co-op on Portland Radio Project at 99.1 FM in the heart of Portland or streaming worldwide at prp.fm. We left off talking about the tasting room and the, mm-hmm. the wine and kind of the fact that you're in Yamhill County and up in the yeah. Chehala Mountains. Um, you have your own vineyard. You're mm-hmm. you're definitely working you know, your site, you know what it's doing to your wine. So mm-hmm. let's talk about the vineyard a little bit. Let's, yeah. What's yeah. different about it? So we have, um, we're, our tasting room is located in downtown Newburgh um, on First Street. And we have a small state vineyard that my dad planted in the mid-80s on Parrot Mountain. And then we also manage blocks at six other sites. So these are essentially lease arrangements. So we don't own those sites. But we've had long-term agreements for specific blocks in which we control viticultural decisions at six sites. So three are in the Yamhill-Carlton district, two are in the Dundee Hills, and one is in the Eola Amity Hills. The wine that we're drinking right now Mm -hmm. is a Viognier from Duver Vineyard, which was the first vineyard to be planted with Viognier in the Willamette Valley that I know of. And so Viognier, we don't have a lot in Oregon, and when we do, oftentimes it's from the Walla Walla area or southern Oregon. But this being a Willamette Valley Viognier, I think that cool climate gives it much more restraint on the palate. So you still get some of the aromatics that you might expect from Viognier, a little bit of tropical fruit, citric fruit, but much more restrained, higher in acid, and of course, totally dry. And it's funny you say the high acid because... A lot of the Viognier's that I've had are very high acid, very crisp, very, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. This was soft. This had a really nice, um, I wouldn't have considered it high acid mm-hmm. because of the softness of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and whether that's, you know, the age of it or the, what you're doing with it or the fermentation process. Right. So we'd ferment all in small lot stainless steel. So it never sees any oak influence. So should really... Um, and we only let it go partially through malolactic fermentation, which what that means is it has a little bit of softness to it, um, but still res- res- retains that structure and what I consider the acidity of it. Yeah, it was. it's really a beautiful Thank white you. wine. So, But we have shifted gears. Yeah. Because we all drained and yeah. drank okay. our, our white wine. <laughs> yeah. So now we've, we've moved yeah. on to the Pinot. So yeah. let's talk that. So I have a, a variety of different Pinots that we do. We essentially have three tiers of blends that we do. So the one that you might find in stores around the Portland area 
is our Willamette Valley. That is a blend of most of the vineyard sites that we work with. We then have the Heredity, which is a reserve blend. And then our highest end Pinot is our Gabriella. And our Gabriella Pinot is really meant to be our best foot forward with a wine that is meant to age. I also have a series of single vineyard wines that we make as well from a variety of our single vineyards. So the Gabriella is named after your daughter, correct? Yeah. So the genesis of the Gabriella wine is that I had my daughter Gabriella in 2015. She came two months early. And so she and I spent a month living in the NICU at Providence, Portland together. And my dad, who uh, was still alive at the time, came to visit us in the NICU, and he said, hey, how do you feel about making a wine in the French tradition that's meant to be aged for a child's 21st birthday? And I said, that sounds great. You write down all the things that you would do to make a wine that's meant to age. I'll do the same. We swapped lists, and it was the same. So that year, in 2015, my dad made a small lot that was meant to be a one-time only um, in honor of her birth, Uh, just enough for our family and our wine club. And in 2000, uh, with the 2016 wines, it was right after he had passed away. And as I was tasting through, there were just a few lots that I thought stood out and really needed to be aged So I decided at that time to do the Gabriella on a continuous basis that was really meant to be our highest end wine. We also donate a portion of proceeds of this wine to uh, the Providence Portland NICU, which is where Gabrielle and I uh, spent the first month of her life. I think that's amazing. And we're going to come right back and we're going to talk to you just a little bit more. Thanks for listening to Wine Crush, where Northwest winemakers tell the stories behind the vine. If you like what you hear, why not give us a review on iTunes? It'll help us share Wine Crush with more listeners. Thanks. Typically in the first segment, we talk about how you personally got into wine. And I got excited about talking about your daughter and your your dad. <laughs> and we missed your whole story about how you really got into this and what you were doing prior to becoming this fabulous winemaker. Sure. So my pathway into wine was entirely about family loyalty. Um, I never set out to do anything professionally in wine. That just really wasn't on my radar. Uh, My background is in biotechnology. So I was interested in science, became interested in developing drugs to help medical needs and diseases. So I worked in biotechnology, ultimately for 20 years. But I had been working in biotech for about 12 years when my dad came to me and said, with his idea of, hey, I want to start a winery. Why don't we do it together? And in my complete naivete about the industry, I said, that sounds really fun. It should be pretty easy. Let's do it. We started really small, kind of uh, doubled each year for the first few years of our business. So my background is in running marketing and sales and product development for the biotechnology industry. So I never had the experience of working with different uh, interning at different wineries or even an academic background in winemaking. Everything I learned about winemaking was entirely from my dad. It is certainly what inspired me to go into this. And everything that I learned was from my dad. 
There's always an inspiration that comes that brings people into the wine industry, mm-hmm. whether it's work-related, family-related. You got drinking one day and it sounded like a great idea related. And from there, <laughs> um, it kind of explodes and blooms and becomes right. whatever it is. So what are you thinking about your decision? Oh, it was, I mean, I never looked back. So I feel so extremely lucky um, that I had the opportunity to um, work with my dad, to work in wine, and that I get to run my own business. And those are three tremendous gifts, and I feel extremely fortunate. Um, There are a few things that I think are really similar between what I was doing in biotechnology and wine or things that have certainly helped me. First, because I have a background in science and I'm very comfortable with the scientific method, that has certainly helped my approach of how I think through winemaking and making, setting up trials of things to try and keep tweaking until we have something that we think works well. Secondly, we have in the Willamette Valley, 75% of wineries are 5,000 or fewer cases. Um, But it's really important, even when it's a small family business, to be very analytical about that. So I think that having an analytical background helps me. And then the third is having a clear sense of purpose of why it is we're doing this. When I worked in biotechnology, it was all about unmet medical needs for patients. Working in wine, it's all about family connection and wine as something that can help enhance family connection. I like that you stopped on that for the mere fact that I wanted to go back to your tasting room. And I, I think I beat you by a few minutes when I got there with our initial meeting. And so I started looking through all the cool pictures of you and your dad and your team and everything on the wall. And to me, that is so heartfelt and it's so, there's so much passion in it, you know, as far as that. And it's just really such a beautiful gift for not only you to be able to remember and see, but those of us that are coming to experience a fee to see what family means and what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And certainly it is, I always say, you know, family inspires us. It's how we started, why we continue, and what we hope accompanies our wines after they leave us. And our hope is that you enjoy the wines with over lingering conversations over a lovely meal with whomever you define as your family. No, for absolutely, for sure. I mean, that's the beauty of what wine has become. So I want to make sure that everybody knows where to find you. Yeah. So we are distributed in Oregon through Winebow. And you can find us at most Zupans, some Whole Foods, and New Seasons. If you can't find us at our local store, please ask your um, wine steward. But that's really only our Willamette Valley. For the wines that we've been tasting today and for the full lineup, you can find us at our tasting room, which is on First Street in Newburgh, or online at www.afewines.com. Thank you, Jessica, so much for joining us, making the trip out, sharing the wines, and really just being wonderful. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks so much. After the break, we'll meet our next guest, Nick Marshall from Benedetto Vineyards. Thanks for listening. Why not head over to iTunes and write us a review? We'd love to hear from you, and it helps others find our show. For new episodes of Wine Crush and to discover other PRP podcasts, check out the PRP Podcast Co-op at prp.fm.
Welcome back to Wine Crush, the podcast for wine lovers. Let's meet our next guest today, Nick Marshall from Benedetto Vineyards. Welcome, Nick. You're looking actually better rested than I actually really was expecting you. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me here. And uh, as you alluded to, I just had uh, my fourth child, our little baby Lena, last Thursday. So she's, we got a week. She's About a week, a week old. old and you're actually sleeping. We are sleeping in shifts. So uh, I think I'm getting just as much sleep as I did before. It's just spread out over a longer, longer stretch. <laughs> two on, a, two off, that sort of thing. That's actually impressive. So hopefully she stays on that schedule and you actually get some rest. So I know with Jessica, I alluded to kind of how um, vineyards and ideas come together as far as starting a, a winery. And yours was definitely unique. And it was creative, and it was, I think, a little drunk. Yeah, the official story is uh, Lisa, my wife, and I went over to our uh, good friends, Ben and Becky Fitzgerald's house. They had, uh, a few years before, moved uh, out of town onto a little piece of property, about three acres, and had a nice house, and they were raising their kids there. And Ben was spending his weekends mowing three acres of grass. And we had a bottle or two of wine and watching the sunset and uh, talking about... uh, well, I was trying to convince him to do something with all this lawn rather than just mowing and mowing. And uh, I I started in, probably was the first one who had a glass too many, and I started in by saying, uh, let's plant some Christmas trees. I'll go in 50-50 on Christmas trees with you. And uh, pretty soon our wives had decided we were going to plant a vineyard. And uh, one of the grapes that we had found and, and one of the wines that we had tasted at uh, not too many places because it was a little bit more rare was a Gamay Noir. So, of course, that's what we decided we'd do. So, we uh, planted a Gamay Noir vineyard at their property, about two acres. I think that's a first. I've not heard quite that take on where a vineyard actually transpires and takes, you know, takes effect and takes, you know, I don't know, fruition, so to speak. So, how's the Gamay Noir vineyard going? Is um, it as fun as you thought it was going to be? Uh, it was a lot more work than we expected. I mean, uh, it was us and our three kids at the time and Ben and Becky and their three kids and uh, just a handful of friends. And we dug holes and stuck plants in the ground and on our hands and knees, filling the holes back in around the, the root systems and putting grow tubes on and pounding posts for trellises and all that ourselves. And so part of it, when we decided to get into the business, um, you know, we probably could have hired all of that out and, and managed it. But we knew if we did it ourselves, then down the line, if we planted another vineyard, we would know what we were managing. And so um, we wanted to make mistakes. We didn't really want to make mistakes, but we were willing to make mistakes and learn from them. And we wanted to uh, become experts by being hands-on. And so uh, it was a great process. I think that's one of the things that um, a lot of people don't realize is how much work planting the vineyard is. I mean, it's a ton of work and a lot of money. And then actually just maintaining the vineyard is a whole nother animal. Yeah. And uh, it's it's interesting because, uh, you know, we're busy with our, our day jobs and a lot of other things. And so uh, you kind of do what you have to do to make everything work. Our first year, we, we bought everything we needed for this vineyard, including the vines. We got them planted and we had half of our irrigation system in. And uh, we ended up spending the first couple months running up and down uh, rows with a hose, basically hand-watering plants until we finished our irrigation system on evenings and uh, Sundays when we weren't working our day jobs. So um, you do what you have to do. It's just like taking care of or raising kids. You, you do what you have to do to get them to grow up uh, strong and healthy. Absolutely. So let's talk about what Benedetto means because you have this really cool logo. Um, it's not your last name. 
No. So what does Benedetto mean? So Benedetto is almost blessed in Italian. Not almost blessed, but it almost is the word blessed. Blessed in Italian is Benedetti, I believe. And we just thought Benedetto sounded better. Um, our partners, Ben and Becky, their last name is Fitzgerald, which didn't sound great for a wine label to us. And my wife and I both have Italian names on each of our sides of the family, but uh, we both wanted our own. And so we, we picked Blessed, which was right in the middle. I think that's actually, I mean, it's a it's a great, I don't know, it's a great word. It rolls off the tongue. It means something that's really pretty beautiful, and it means something to you guys. So I want to stop right there. We're going to talk about your wines. We're going to talk about your really cool tasting room because I really loved it up there. And that had a good story as well. And we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Wine Crush. You can find all the episodes of Wine Crush in the PRP Podcast Co-op at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with... Nick Marshall from Benedetto Vineyards, and we left off talking about vineyards and all the hard work, but we're going to start talking about some wine. And you brought us a nice little array today. That's right. I brought three different bottles. I brought our uh, Reserve Chardonnay. I better look at the bottle so I don't get the year wrong. It was our 2016 Reserve Chardonnay. It just won a bronze medal at the uh, Newport Wine and Seafood Festival, so we're pretty proud of that. Any hardware from festivals is always a great thing, and it's good for the ego. I would definitely agree. I mean, it uh, it's a lot of hard work being in the business. And uh, I, I think our greatest satisfaction is when people are at the tasting room and they tell us they're going to come back. And then you see them a week or two or three weeks later and they bring in some friends. But, uh, you know, when you enter a wine competition and you get an award, then uh, it doesn't mean quite as much as a happy customer, but it's pretty close. Well, I would probably say that's kind of, you know, you and I um, met up at the tasting room and I think we drank through like seven wines that day, something. It was a nice lineup and array of choices. Yeah, it was six wines, but not six full bottles. No, not that day. <laughs> I didn't have a driver. I needed to actually get home. But a couple of weeks later, I did bring up my husband and some friends, and we um, met your lovely wife, who was very pregnant at the time. And so I think we drank through probably another six or seven. But you also said you had a couple new releases coming out. Yeah, we have some new releases coming out. Uh, the vineyard where the tasting room is, kind of to back up, uh, we originally talked about our Gamay Vineyard at Ben and Becky's house. And then uh, about a year later, Lisa and I found this piece of property where our tasting room is out between Highway 22 and the town of Dallas. And uh, it was a 24-acre piece of property that had five acres of 15-year-old vines on it. Uh, four acres of Pinot Noir, one acre of Chardonnay, and it was planted by a really nice guy named David Tennant as a retirement project when he was in his early 60s. And uh, we met him. He was in his later 70s. We had just been in the business a little while with our Gamay Vineyard, and uh, he was looking to retire and move back down to the coast where he's from. And uh, his concern was somebody was going to buy this vineyard, bulldoze his vines that he had 15 years into, and build a McMansion. And um, I reassured him I didn't have enough money to build a McMansion, and <laughs> and I was dumb enough to try to build a tasting room and make some wine. And so he said, uh, "You're my guy. I'll sell to you." And we we've worked together, and and uh, it's just turned out to be a really good thing. Well, it sounds like just the whole relationship between you and him was just kind of a a really cool kind of um, thing, just in general. Because I think you said he was like a crab biologist. Yeah, he's actually uh, has a master's degree in oceanography and uh, wrote his uh, 
master's thesis on Dungeness crab and knows more about crab than anybody you'll probably ever meet and uh, knew a little bit about wine and learned a lot about uh, running a vineyard and planting a vineyard. And uh, he's still there. Uh, if I need to email him or call him, he's, he's there for advice. It is the one thing that I love about the wine industry is that you never know where people come from, what they were doing, who they were. Why would a crab biologist plant a vineyard in the middle of Dallas? Uh, probably the same reason why we wanted to take it over. He'd uh, been around to a lot of tasting rooms and drank a lot of wine and uh, decided, you know, I want to be more than just a customer. I want to I want to be involved in this uh, personally. Yeah, it's... um. I don't know. It's just, I think that's what makes this so fascinating for me is all these different personalities, people, and the product that comes from it. Yeah. And product-wise, so David, uh, his name was David Tennant, who had the vineyard before us. Um, When he planted the vineyard, he did something really neat. He planted five different clones of Pinot Noir, uh, one clone of Chardonnay. So we have, in a relatively small vineyard of only five acres, we have a lot of diversity of different uh, clones of Pinot. And so we're able to uh, to make some different wines. And it, it's kind of neat where he um, either sold his crop every year or he did have a label where he was making kind of a basic wine and just wholesaling it off through the distributor. And when we took over three years ago, we switched gears and we're keeping each clone separate, barreling, fermenting it, barreling them separate. Some of them we end up blending but we're starting to release some clone-specific uh, um, Pinots, and uh, we're really excited about them. Well, I want to stop right there because we're going to come back in the next segment, and I want to dive a little bit deeper into what you actually brought because we totally took a right-hand turn in the middle of that, and we didn't get to talk about this beautiful array of things that you brought for us to drink. So let's just pause right there, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Wine Crush, one of our locally produced podcasts at Portland Radio Project. Get in touch, discover, and listen at prp.fm. We are back with Nick from Benedetto, and we've had an, just a joyous break talking about all kinds of things. So let's start with the wine that you brought, because we totally got diverted with other things, and we've hit the Chardonnay but we've missed the rest of it. Okay, I'm going to go back to the Chardonnay. So we brought our 2016 Reserve Chardonnay, and uh, there's four of us that own Benedetto, myself, my wife, Lisa, and Ben and Becky Fitzgerald. And so different ones of us kind of focus on different wines. So the Chardonnay is really my wife, Lisa's baby. And uh, the 2016 Reserve is more of a California-style reserve, so a little bit bigger, a little more buttery. I think we kind of hit butterscotch more than butter butter or maybe a caramel note to it. And But what we did is when we made it, we made an estate Chardonnay and a reserve Chardonnay kind of at the same time. And uh, the estate's more of a typical Oregon Chardonnay, crisp, clean, spent six months on neutral oak, and that was it, as opposed to the 16 Reserve, which uh, incidentally won the bronze uh, Chardonnay Award at the uh, Newport Wine and Seafood Festival it spent three years on oak, so that's where it, it got that uh, butterscotch or uh, caramel flavor from. Uh, the other wine that I brought is our 2018 Reserve. It uh, silver medaled at the First Taste of Oregon at the State Fairgrounds a couple months ago. It's almost exclusively uh, Pinot Noir Clone 114, and uh, we're pretty proud of it. We have a couple other clone-specific uh, wines coming out here in May. 
That's pretty exciting. And, and I mean, other things that you have in your lineup, you have a rosé, you had a, you have a couple different pinots, depending on, you know, vineyards and clones and whatever. What else is up there that we need to be talking about? Um, I think you pretty much hit them. You know, we've got, uh, I guess by May, we'll have five different Pinot Noirs out. Um, we've got two different rosés. We have a Pinot Gris and a rosé, as mentioned. And I guess the other one is our red wine, um, which is a blend. It's 50% Tempranillo and 50% Merlot. The Tempranillo we source from Sarah Vineyards in Southern Oregon, which is outside of Jacksonville. And the uh, Merlot is from up in the gorge by the Dells. That red blend for my husband, who is not a wine guy, he loved it. We I made it with you know made a steak because he's notorious for getting drunk with wine and telling everybody that it goes great with steak. So that it did go great with steak that night. Yeah, it does go great with steak or great with a plate of traditional spaghetti with a red sauce on it. Um, you know, Lisa's our Chardonnay person and, and Becky's pretty much the queen of our rosé. But the one thing that uh, was our common denominator between the four of us is we liked big red wines. We like to go over to Walla Walla and drink big reds. We like Napa big reds. And we wanted to make something uh, from Oregon that was similar that we could have with a ribeye or a plate of spaghetti or something like that. And so this was really the red wine that we made for ourselves and uh, we share with our wine club. Perfect. Well, I want to make sure that we have plenty of time to talk about your really cool tasting room because it is up in the hills. It's outside of Dallas. It is a great place to go. It's very low key. And you have um, you have special things in the refrigerator for those that do not drink. Yeah, we always wine. have some. Yes, correct. We always have some beer around for, for and. Occasionally some cider around for folks that uh, are hesitant to start wine. And we really just use the beer to warm them up so we can get them to try some wine, um, which tends to work. But yeah, our tasting room, uh, we built it from scratch. Uh, about half of it uh, we subbed out, but about half of it, Ben and I did the work. And Lisa and Becky did a lot of painting and staining. And, and they picked out uh, all the colors and the flooring and, and all that sort of thing. And so... Um, we're pretty proud of our tasting room, but more than that, it's a really cool piece of property. We have several private picnic-type areas and an outdoor patio with a fire pit and, and that sort of thing. So we're really proud of that. And we get a lot of customers who either aren't big landscapers and don't take great care of their yards or people who live in apartments and they want to spend out time outside and they want to have a picnic. And, and we feel like we can provide that for people that want to come up. Well, I want to mention that um, Thirsty Thursdays are a real thing up at Benedetto, and you should definitely seek out your website, the property, everything. And Nick, I'm so happy that you joined us in the recording studio here. We will be back to the taste room because my husband loved it, and we will see you soon. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Wine Crush. Have a great weekend, and we will see you at the bottom of the glass.